0: Good morning. It is good to have you here. Those of you here in the building, so great to have you on a rainy fall morning like that. Those of you in Skagit, glad that you're joining us today. And those of you who are worshiping with us online, whether you're by yourself, with a friend, with a family, in a community group, so glad that you're with us uh, here today. Uh, Honestly, I am excited that every single one of you are here because my prayer has been that every single one of us would hear a word from God today. And I think there's something that maybe you can hold on to uh, if you're open to it. Um, we started a series, our fall series last weekend, talking about the puzzles of parables. Looking at these stories that Jesus told throughout the um, throughout the, the New Testament, he tells somewhere between—depends on how you categorize them and how you count them—somewhere between 35 and 55 of these stories that are referred to as as parables. And, and there are stories that that his listeners could understand they could grasp they were engaging they they got it's like ordinary stuff in life a woman that's making bread a guy that's a a farmer that's planting his field those kind of things they they could understand it but he would throw these stories alongside of a truth that the story would help to illustrate would help to explain would help to reveal the truth and while the story on the surface might seem just kind of nice like a a an anecdotal thing of here's a story of life upon further reflection, you begin to find out that there's a profound truth underneath this, that yeah, this story seems a little bit benign, but it holds this punch of this this powerful thing that we can apply to our lives. And most often when Jesus would tell these stories, he would just leave them hanging, like figure it out. And now there were a few times where he would explain it. We looked at one last week where he's like, I don't want anyone to miss this. Let me explain what this means. But that was a rarity. Uh, side note, if you were not able to be with us last week and you want to catch the front end of this series, each one can stand alone, so you ha- you're okay being here today. But um, last week kind of laid the foundation for the series of what I would hoped for us going into this series. So if you, want, if you missed that, you can go online, you can uh, watch it or download it and listen to that. But he would tell these stories and then he would lead them t- with us to just kind of explain it and understand it and interpret it and figure out what was he getting at and he told these stories over and over again Matthew 13 it says this Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables he did not say anything to them without using a parable now when you're studying parables when you're reading the parables of Jesus there is a little bit of a caution that you need to take on this because usually when he would tell one of these stories he was making a point like the story pointed to one truth. Sometimes there were others, but, but usually it was a point that he was trying to make. The, the danger we can run is if we look at the parables like an allegory, if you've ever read an allegory, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, for instance, or my, one of my favorites, Hind's Feet on High Places. In an allegory, each of the characters, each of the situations, and each of the pieces, they all represent something. This is not what Jesus was doing with the parables. And if you start looking at it as an allegory, you'll start looking into little details. You'll read into it things that Jesus never wanted you to read into. And you'll see it as this cipher that has to somehow be decoded and then you can get this secret truth or whatever. And, and, and sometimes if you look at it that way, you'll start going on a detail, this little color detail that Jesus may have thrown in the story. You say, well, this must represent this and it must mean this and this. And it takes you sidetracked down this trail and you totally miss the point. And the reason I tell you that is because I'm the worst at this. I want everything to represent everything. I want to find the truth in all of that. And usually Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Back up, 30,000 foot view. There's one point that I'm trying to make in this story. So keep that in mind. Uh, today we're going to be uh, in Matthew 13 again. I mentioned last week that Matthew, in his gospel, in Matthew chapter 13, he lists seven of these parables that Jesus teaches. And in our series uh, leading up to Advent, we will spend half of this series looking at parables that happen in Matthew chapter 13. Today we're going to look at two of them, and this is what is referred to as, as a parable pair. Jesus does this frequently. We'll see it again next week, where he'll take two different stories and tell them back to back, and they have the same meaning. And It's, it's almost like he takes one approach And just to make sure, if you didn't get that one, or maybe another group in his audience would hear it differently, he would come from a different approach, and maybe just a little bit of a different facet on the same story, a little bit turning. And so we're gonna look at that. There was one time... That Jesus told a parable triad. It only happens once in Luke chapter 15. Back to back to back stories all telling the same thing. We're not even going to look at that one. I wish, I mean, that one's just uh, amazing. It's about a a woman who lost a coin, a shepherd who lost a sheep, and a father who lost a son. And it all tells the same story. But this is a a parable pair. We'll look at two of them today. And one more little thing before we get into it is that today... um, there's a possibility that I may dissect the very life out of this story. Some of you might be going, okay, Bob, get to the point. And, and, and can I just ask you, hang with me. When you feel like, like, okay, enough, enough, get to what, hang with me. And I believe that at the end, um, we'll be able to see the point. If not... Then go home, read it for yourself, and Jesus will reveal to you the point. (laughs) And you can just humor me today. So let's get into this this parable triad. We're going to start in um, Matthew uh, uh, 13, verse 44. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now this is where we got to stop. See, this is where I'm going to dissect the very life out of this thing. The kingdom of heaven is like. This is a kingdom parable. And again, of the 35 to 55 parables that Jesus tells, many of them are kingdom parables. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. And the reality is, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was like the topic number one for Jesus. It's what he spoke of all the time. After he was baptized, went into the wilderness, was tempted, then he started his ministry. It said he went into the region sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. And all throughout his ministry, he talks about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. In these parables he would talk about the kingdom of heaven and even after his death on the cross and his resurrection he met with his disciples and the bible says he taught them many things about the kingdom of god even then he continues to talk about the kingdom of god what is this new reality that he invites him into what is this new kingdom that he's ushering in that he's bringing to earth it's different than the other kingdoms it's different than the kingdoms of the world it's not like the kingdom of egypt It's not like the Assyrians. It's not like the Babylonians. It's not like the Medo-Persians. It's not even like the kingdom of the Roman Empire. It's not even like the kingdom of Israel that they had in their history. It's different. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is the rule and reign of God. It's where what God wants happens. The rule and reign of God. It's what Dallas Willard would refer to as the range of god's effective will that when god's will is being done that's his kingdom last fall we did an entire series called kingdom culture and we talked about you know this this kingdom john ortberg says that when jesus talks about the kingdom he wasn't trying to get his people into heaven he was trying to get heaven into his people up there down here and that's when jesus would pray lord your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven That what happens up there with the effective range of God's will, God's rule and God's reign, the way it happens in heaven, may that happen here on earth. That's what the kingdom looks like. And Jesus would say, this kingdom is not of this world. In fact, the kingdom of God is within you. So when we live within the reign and the rule of God, that we are living in this kingdom of God. And Jesus just kept explaining this and inviting people in. And it wasn't just, oh, I've got to live under these rules and the reign of, of God and I've got to submit to all this. That's part of it. But he says, it's the power and the presence of God dwelling right within you. That the power and presence of God and his reign and his rule is not just, you know, then and there, someday far beyond the blue. Yes, there's that whole eternal thing. But it's here and now and it's present in our life and we can live in this reality. And it's now and not yet. There will come a day. There will come a day when God sets all things right and his kingdom and his reign and his rule will rule over all things. That hasn't happened yet, but it happens in our life. It happens now. And he calls us to bring that kingdom to bear on this earth. That gets into next week's sermon. I won't even go any further into that one. But he would talk about this kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? How does it operate? How do you get into it? How how do you live as a citizen of the kingdom? And these parables would tell that. It would illustrate that. It would show these little glimpses, these little pictures of life in the kingdom. And so he starts and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Okay, we've got to stop here. See, this is the dissection part. Like treasure hidden in a field. I mean, he's got me right there. Isn't there something about a treasure-like story? I mean, we love this. We're gripped by this. How many of you ever read Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson's classic, those the swashbucklers and the pirates? How many of you ever rode the ride the Pirates of the Caribbean or watched the movies with Captain Jack Sparrow and you're just drawn in by this, this hidden treasure or, or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark looking for all these treasures? You, you know, the national treasure with, with uh uh Nicolas Cage or, or the curse of oak island some of you just like can't wait till the news episodes and the new season starts there's something about these treasure stories that grab us a map with clues and x marks a spot and if you can get to that x it'll be there and if you find that and you're the first one there you open it up oh yeah untold wealth and fortunes they wait for you we're grabbed by these stories listen this is human history jesus knew that his people would be drawn in by a treasure story a thousand years before jesus tells his story solomon writes these words in proverbs chapter 2 verse 4 seek after seek after wisdom like you would seek after a hidden treasure i mean for human history for three thousand years people have been drawn in by these treasure stories there's just something about it. And Jesus draws his listeners in about one of these stories. It's one thing. If it's a novel, it's one thing if it's a movie. But what if it's a real story? I mean, what if it's a real life story? I don't know if in the last 10 or 11 years any of you have ever followed the story about Finn's treasure, a true story about a man named Forrest Finn. He was an art dealer and lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And in 2010, he put together a little chest, a little bronze chest And in this chest, he put 265 gold coins, hundreds of gold nuggets, hundreds of rubies, emeralds, sapphires, diamonds, and some ancient artifacts. And he hid it. And he hid it in the Rocky Mountain Range. And in his memoir called The Thrill of the Chase, he writes a poem in one of the chapters. It's a 24-line poem, very short poem. But he said, in this poem, there are nine clues, nine hints. And if you can figure out these nine clues and nine hints, it will take you to this chest valued at about $2 million, and it will be yours. And he said, here's what I'll give you the, the little free bonus clue. It's north of Santa Fe. <laughs> OK. The Rocky Mountains go clear into Canada. He says, it's out there. And his whole goal, his whole goal would that, would that be that there would be some people who would be so drawn by this treasure, it would get them outside. He was an avid outdoorsman, and he knew that the real treasure they would find is in nature. But for, for years, people would read this poem, try to figure out, what do these clues mean? And there were websites, and there were chat rooms, and all these things as they would go, and people would take their vacations looking for Finn's treasure, and, and, and some people would get real obsessed and quit their jobs, and, and in the course of things, five individuals lost their lives. They'd go out, they would start looking, they would get lost and they would die. They would go into some cliff and they would fall off and they'd they'd get drowned in some river. They were trying to find this treasure. Finally, in June of 2020, a man named Jack, a medical student from the East Coast, found Finn's treasure. Interesting little thing, three months later, Forrest Finn died. What a story. Or how about this one, in 2013, there's a middle-aged couple in Northern California who took their dog for a walk on their property. And as they were walking on their property, they noticed something they had never noticed before. It was, a, it was a rusty can, a rusty, like this can, and they thought that's odd, and they unearthed it. And when they opened the can, they found that it contained gold coins, like minted U.S. gold coins, like $20 gold pieces. And as they began to search around, they found six of these cans on their property. In all total, they found 1,400 gold coins. The face value of these coins was about $27,000. However, the market value of these coins, because they were so rare, and because of the condition they were in, they were all minted between 1847 and 1894. The market value of these 1400 coins was $10 million. You'll think twice the next time someone says, could you walk the dog? <laughs> oh yeah, let me walk the dog. You know, the only downside of that story is that in the U.S. tax laws, there's a thing called treasure trove. And that of that $10 million that they found on their own property, the U.S. treasury in the state of California got $4.7 million of it. Now, I'm not going to even go anywhere there. But we love these kind of stories. Let's get back to the Bible. So he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, there's a lot we don't know. Who is this man? He obviously doesn't own the field. Was he out walking his dog and he found this treasure? We don't know. Was he working in the field? Was he plowing the field? That would make sense. Plowing and it comes up or whatever. Was he an employee of the man who owns the field? Was he a day laborer? Was he just out walking? We don't know about this man. But he found this treasure and he didn't tell anyone. In fact, he hid it again. And then in great excitement, he did whatever he had to do to purchase the field. Because in purchasing the field, the treasure would become his. Now, I wonder, as Jesus tells his story, he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. If there aren't, some people say, no, wait a second, Jesus, oh, son of God, holy and righteous one, this story seems a little shady to me. Like there's some deception here. Like there's a lack of integrity and you the son of god the holy and righteous one are telling a story about this guy i mean it doesn't seem quite right because didn't that treasure really belong to the guy who owned the field and then he doesn't tell him when he found it. he should have gone and told the owner and maybe he would have got a portion of that and matthew who wrote this matthew who was a tax collector probably said, what about the treasure trove tax i mean they've got to owe some of that to this. and jesus is probably going are you serious you missed the whole point of the story So I think he said, okay, let's try this again. Again, the kingdom of heaven, try a different angle, is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Now he takes a different stab at it. He says, there's this guy. And his whole job is, he's not a shop owner, but he's a merchant. And he's looking for these fine pearls. He knows pearls. He knows the value of them. He knows the size of them, the color of them, the shape of them. He buys them. He sells them. He's successful. He's good at this. He travels to all kinds of exotic ports. He's a successful businessman that travels around, and he looks for all these pearls, and he finds these pearls. They're probably going, okay, this is a little more legitimate, a little more integrity. You're on a good roll here, Jesus. Keep going. What are you saying? He says, this man is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and when he found one of great value, this is where I think Jesus' fictitious story weaves into it an element of something they were very familiar with. Because just 60 years earlier, a woman had died, a very famous woman, from Alexandria, her name, Cleopatra. She had just passed away 60 years ago. But Cleopatra was known to have owned the two largest and most valuable pearls on the face of the planet. Pliny the Elder, who was a historian, he was also one of the early gemologists. He's the father of the modern day encyclopedia. He wrote a thing called natural history. Pliny the Elder would speak of Cleopatra and these pearls. We don't have time for this. One of them she dissolved and drank, but there was this other pearl. And I think when Jesus says this pearl merchant, he's out and he finds this one of great value, they're immediately thinking like Cleopatra's pearl. The one Pliny the Elder will write about. They know that, so so they're they're drawing this. For for our purposes, we'll look at this pearl. This pearl is called La Peregrina, the Pilgrim. It was found in the 16th century. For many many years, it was uh, owned by Spanish nobility, royalty, and such. Uh, A little side note that I find fascinating: Napoleon Bonaparte's brother stole it for a while. Anyway, in 1969. Richard Burton bought this pearl for his wife Liz Taylor, thus the, pur- the purple and the eyes. Okay, buys this pearl for his wife Liz Taylor and spends $37,000 to buy this necklace for her. In 2011, this necklace sold for $11.5 million. A pearl of great value. Now I will have you know that these pearls came in a little bag from Hobby Lobby for $299. So he finds his great pearl. And what does he do? He went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. Very similar in the stories, but differences. And Jesus just kind of leaves out, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Think about it. And I start thinking about, okay, so what's he saying? What's his his story in this? What is the angle he's taking? I think about the contrast of the two stories, because they're told back to back. One of them is this guy that, man, he's like, Maybe an employee. Maybe a day laborer in a field. Maybe he's like blue collar. This other guy's a successful businessman. Maybe what Jesus is saying is that in the kingdom of God, there's no social economic distinction. That everyone's in, invited and, and everyone's welcome. It doesn't matter if you have a lot or little or, or if, if you don't even own a field or if you own a, a merchant company. I mean, that maybe that's it. And, and I think there's scripture that would corroborate that. That yes, the kingdom of God is open for all. Or... Or I look at the differences. The pearl merchant was seeking the pearls. And didn't Jesus say, ask and you'll receive? Seek and you will find. Maybe that's what he's getting. And Jeremiah, when it says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But the other guy wasn't seeking. He just kind of came across it accidentally. But God says in Isaiah, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. Maybe what God is saying is if you seek me, you'll find me. And even if you don't seek me, I'm gonna try to reveal myself. I'm gonna give you the map. I'm gonna give you the clues. I'm gonna clear my throat. I want you to find me. I don't want it to be difficult. I'm not hiding from you. And maybe that's it. Oh, well, that's cool too. And what, I see these contrasts, but. How about the similarities? And I want to take for just a few minutes to look at the similarities between these two individuals, this this possible day laborer who has nothing and stumbles across the treasure and this very wealthy pearl merchant who is seeking it, the similarities, and see how that applies to us. And one of the things that both guys have in common is that both of them have an understanding of the value of the treasure. They understand its value. And when jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like and maybe he's saying there is such value in this kingdom that i'm offering to you there's so much such riches in being in a right relationship with god to have the kingdom of god to be loved and accepted by your heavenly father to be forgiven and to have your shame and your guilt and all the punishment taken care of and and to experience that grace and to live in his mercies which are brand new and every day and his power and his presence dwells within us and the Holy Spirit lives within us and transforms us in this new life and uses us and then eternity to have this beautiful value. I mean, the psalmist would write in Psalm 19 about the law of God more to be desired are these laws than gold, than much fine gold. And Jesus come along and say, yes, that's the law of God, but how about the law of God, and the life of God, and the Lord of God, uh, the Lord of the kingdom, that's all available. Paul would write to the, ch- the churches in Ephesians and, and in Colossians where he would say, use words like the, the, the uncomparable riches, the, the, the unsearchable riches the glorious riches. Do you know the value of the kingdom of God? Do you know the value of his grace? And here's the hazard for guys like me and like some of you. For some of us raised in the church, some of us have been walking with the Lord for a while, that maybe we've become so familiar with the kingdom that we've been invited into, so familiar with the forgiveness and the grace that we live in, so familiar with life in the lord that it doesn't really strike us as being unsearchable glorious riches anymore it's just become too familiar to us yeah i know i'm forgiven yeah i know jesus died on the cross yeah i know i've got eternity someday yeah 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 yeah. Uh, let me illustrate this in 2009 my mom took my brother and i to tanzania uh africa uh, they were dedicating a dormitory in my mom and father's honor and name. So dad was dead, and so we went out there. Uh, anyway, while we were there, we decided to do a safari in the Ngorongora crater, which is an amazing thing in and of itself. The Ngorongora crater is a, is a, an extinct volcano. the uh, The caldera is is huge. It's the largest one on the on the face of the planet. the The inside, uh, the basin of this extinct crater, this volcano. Is 120 square miles it is enormous and the ecosystems that are within there and the and the the whole the the animal kingdom that's within there and chase animals out I mean it's, it's, it's fascinating so we're gonna go on a safari down into the Ngorongora crater we get to the rim of the crater and there we have to uh, transfer over to a into a land cruiser with a guide who's a certified guide and uh, an African driver so we're in there and we're going down, and as we're making our way down into this crater, down into the caldera, um, the guide is just telling us about the history of the volcano and the size of the volcano and all this stuff. And we drive past this meadow, and my brother and I are like, and he's just talking, talking, talking. we just driving. We're like, hey, hey, well, can you stop? Can you tell the driver to stop? Stop, stop. And he's, okay, well, yeah, what, 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 what happened? And I took this picture, because I had never seen a zebra before. <laughs> I mean, yeah, fruit-striped gum. I grew up with that, but never, I'm mean, like, you can't just drive past these and a baby one too and you don't know how many pictures of these zebras i took they were about 25 or 30 and he was going to drive around i'm like he doesn't get it he sees us every day this is so familiar to him he doesn't realize how spectacular this is he said you'll see more zebras <laughs> by noon We drive past a herd of zebras. I get this striped ponies out of here. Let's see something new. I had fallen into the same thing in less than half a day. It had become so familiar, so commonplace. And I think some of us, we've lost the awe. We've lost the wonder. We're no longer moved with joy and tears at the treasure of being in the kingdom of God. And these two guys, they understood it. They knew the value. And with that, they were gripped by the joy of the prospect. There was this idea that that could be mine. I could get that pearl. I could get that treasure. I mean, what does it say about the, the man in the field? He hit it again, and then in his joy went and sold everything. He was moved by this joy of this could be mine. And then he goes, he's not going, oh, man, found a treasure. I'm probably going to have to sell everything. Ah, I hate this, everything's gotta go, liquidate it all. Craigslist, eBay, Poshmark, here we go. I mean, my record album's gotta go, my baseball cards have gotta go, my wife's precious moments have gotta go. (laughs) It's all gotta go. No, it's with joy. I mean, he does this cost-benefit analysis, and so often when we do a cost-benefit analysis, We look more at the cost than at the benefit. Not these guys. They're looking at the benefit. I I have a friend who is frugal. Some would call him cheap. He says, I'm value conscious. What that means is he always looks at the cost more so than the benefit. These guys are value conscious, but they're looking at the benefit, not the cost. It's as if they're saying, listen, I'm not gonna settle for a lesser treasure. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stay with my precious moments and my baseball cards. I've got something better and with joy. Th- th- this can be mine with joy of the possibility. I mean, scripture says eye has not seen and ear has not heard and mind has not conceived of the things that God has prepared for them. Do you not see with the cost-benefit analysis that the benefit so outweighs the cost? That what you're giving up is so little compared to what you're gaining and jesus says the kingdom of of heaven is like that and for both of them one with probably not much at all and one with a whole lot they were both willing to pay the price they're both willing to say i'll surrender i'll give it up i'll sell it i'll I'll get rid of whatever it takes and there was no halfway it's not like well i'll sell half of my stuff or i'll sell half of my it wasn't going to be that way it was going to be all or nothing And a little side note, just so that we're clear. That's how we receive the kingdom of God. It's not how we merit the kingdom of God. You cannot buy your way into the kingdom of God with anything. It's how we receive it. And isn't this what Jesus would say over and over again? Hey, count the cost. Don't make an emotional decision. Think this through. Count the cost. And wouldn't Jesus say, hey, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you'll lose your life for me and for the kingdom, you will gain it. Wouldn't he say if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me? I mean, what does it profit him? A man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. Wasn't that the issue with the rich young ruler? He comes and he's, he's righteous and he wants to have the eternal life and they go through the whole deal and then Jesus says, Oh, one more thing. Try this one sell everything and he walks away sad there's something more important some of you are familiar with jim elliott a missionary who lost his life way too young very famous for this line he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose i'm not gonna be able to keep this anyway and i'll never be able to lose this why would i hold on to that when i can have this paul writes in philippians he says whatever was to my gain i consider it lost for the sake of christ what is more i consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing christ jesus my lord for whose sake i have lost all things i consider them garbage that i may gain christ he just recognizes everything else pales in comparison timothy keller said this i I love this line he says unconditional surrender Leads to unimaginable splendor. So Jesus says, "Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like." And he tells a story: two guys, very opposite guys, but both of them see the value, the riches, and both of them, filled with joy, are willing to give up everything to follow and to, guess, to get to grasp this. And he says, "That's the kingdom of God." Now, some of you are saying, wow, it sounds like Bob's winding down his sermon, and this is very short. <laughs> Sit back. <laughs> That's a great story. Those are great stories. Those are great illustrations, great explanation of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and what it will cost. But what if, what if those stories don't mean that at all? What if that's not the point of the stories? They're true, I I believe they're true, but and and they are a point, but but what if what if it's not the main point? What if that what we just talked about is is secondary? It's, It's true, but it's secondary. What if it's not the main point? What if when Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like, I want you to listen up, I want to give you an illustration, I want you to see what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he talks about something very, very valuable: these riches, these treasures, this pearl. And he talks about the joy of seeing these things and the potential of grabbing them and the, the price that's, that's paid. And, and everything is spent for this. And what if, what if you are the treasure? What if he says, let me tell you about the kingdom of God? You're not the one that sells everything to get this treasure, you are what it was so desired, so valuable so precious that heaven would sell everything to get you. Now that changes the whole thing. Think about that for a minute. We'll come back to it. For some of you, are like... <laughs> One of the things you probably don't know about me is that um, I really enjoy on occasion watching like the Barrett-Jackson auction uh, on television or the Mecham auction, the auto auction. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these. Honestly, I could sit and watch that for hours. I don't, but I could. To see these cars come across and, and to... Some of them are cool, some them are funky, some of them are ugly, but, and to see what, what do people pay for these, and I just, and, and the bidding that goes back and forth, and sometimes when there's a car, like, I remember, you know, like, the 1978 IROC Z28 comes across, like, oh, I remember that was, like, the cool, anyway, so, and, and to watch, and then sometimes there'll be one that goes for, like, fairly cheap, I'm like, I could have bought that car. <laughs> Most of them are not that way, but to watch these things, and, and then to see the bidding, and, then, and it gets crazy sometimes. I mean into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then when they start looking at the Bugattis and the McLarens, we're talking one, two, and three million dollars people are paying for these cars and I'm just sitting there watching like this is so cool. It's not costing me anything. (laughs) And what's great is in these auctions is sometimes you'll get these two bidders and they're going after this car and and, and you got someone from the auction over here. And a lot of times you'll see this guy and he's on the phone. And I always imagine he's talking to his dad who has the deep pockets, his dad who has the car collection. He's like, Dad, it's gone up to this price. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, we're in. Okay, they're in, okay. And then they're they're going, he's like, okay, Dad. And, and he's on this phone the whole time. And as the price gets higher, they're a little slower to say we're in. I mean, it just slows down. You can tell it's getting to that edge. And you can imagine as this bidding war is happening and the price is getting crazy and the crowds are crazy and I'm crazy. And the guy's talking on the phone and it's his turn and, and he's bidding. And, and he's saying, well, they're, they're asking for this price. And what if at that point, the phone line goes dead. What do we do now? Grabs his cell phone and he texts his dad, "This is what we're wanting. This is how much they're asking. This is where the bid is." This one. and his dad maybe he texts back these words, "No, price too high. Okay, auction's over. We're out. It's done." But what if, Dad, the old man, in his haste of texting in his voice to text, accidentally since this text, no price too high. Oh, <laughs> well, now that changes everything. Now we have an open checkbook, don't stop until we own it. Same words, different meaning. When Jesus tells this story, I wonder if he's basically saying, when it comes to you, the father removes the comma and it's not an accident, it's not in haste, it's not an oversight. He says, for my precious son, for my valuable daughter, no price is too high. Wouldn't scripture corroborate that? First Peter chapter 1 says, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, no price too high. We're not talking silver and gold. We're talking about the body and blood of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter eight says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He impoverishes himself, no price too high. I'll sell it all so you can be a part of this kingdom. Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things no price too high pay whatever it costs and bring them into the kingdom and if god would not spare any expense on purchasing us with the blood of christ what makes us think he's going to skimp out on us and bringing us into his family and into his kingdom Jesus does the cost-benefit analysis. And In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? The joy. You remember the guy that went in joy and sold all he had? Maybe Jesus is giving a glimpse of, that's me. The joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, sold it all, gave it all up, surrendered it all, No cost, no price too high. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And maybe Jesus says, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. There's this treasure. There's this pearl. There's this valuable individual. You, and you, and you, and you. And no price is too high. So some of you are saying, "Okay, well, Pastor, which is it? Is it that the that the kingdom is the treasure and I sell everything, or am I the treasure and they sold everything? Which is it?" Yes. Yes. Jesus is our treasure and we are His. But this you have to understand. That you are a treasure in the eyes of the Father long before you ever recognized there was a treasure in the kingdom of God. We love because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were his enemies, when we were on our own, when we were out and buried in the dirt in the field, God saw the value in us long before we ever wanted the value of the kingdom of God. To understand that and then to respond to that love The old song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, that last line, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Don't ever talk about the cost of discipleship unless you see it through the filter of the price that was paid. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. You know, yesterday afternoon with our elders and this morning with some of our pastors, we've been praying that this message would grip our hearts. For those of us who've been walking with the Lord for years, we would be moved again by the awe and the wonder and the value and the riches and the treasure of being in the grace and the goodness of God every single day. Filled with joy, moved And that maybe somewhere today, maybe you're watching online, and maybe you're here in this room. You're feeling like, I've messed up too bad. God would never want me. I'm not a part of this thing. You are the treasure. You are the pearl of great price. And God says, no cost too high. Come into my kingdom. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. I hope that we will live in this reality that we are so valued, so loved by God. And in response to that, knowing that he he gave up everything for us, that we would be willing to say, everything else pales in comparison. He who, who did not spare his own son, how's he not gonna give us the great riches of the kingdom of God? While we were still sinners, he died for us. I count it all rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, that we would live with that reality, gladly surrendering to the one who gave us everything.